0: I think in the previous episode I said we were going to do the D as in delta section today, and then I realized D doesn't come after E. F comes after E. So we're not doing the D section. We've we've done D, we've done E, we're doing F today. But before we go through the F section of the L series in the software of Slackware, um, I want to talk a little bit really quickly about the EPUB thing. I, I kind of realized I, I, I think I had meant to talk about my EPUB process and then got distracted by something and, and started talking about something else. So, um, just real quick, like what I do for EPUB, uh, is I do, I, I use a tool called XSLTProc, proc and that processes content from doc book format into, if you have the correct schema, into an EPUB. So XSLTProc sounds a little bit scarier and more intimidating than it actually is, uh, well, these days. I mean, it, it is scary and intimidating. XSL, I, I can't stand XSL, I think it's horrible. I don't know if it could be better, like it might have to be as bad as it is, I, I don't know. Um, it ain't CSS, let's put it that way. And and I would love for it to be more like CSS, but I'm, I'm sure that there are lots of very smart people thinking about this kind of stuff, and, and they have lots of probably great reasons as to why CSS is not suitable for printed, fixed-size media. So, you know, that that's a thing. XSL is tough. DocBook can be tough, because that's XML. But these days, you have ASCII-Doc. And ASCII-Doc is no more complex than Markdown. And Markdown can honestly be learned in about a minute. Uh, and so can ASCII-Doc. Uh, I would say that ASCII-Doc might appear to be more complex if you're coming from Markdown. I found, I, I kind of... I was coming from Markdown to ASCII Doc, but also from RST and and from XML. So relative to those technologies, ASCII Doc wasn't very difficult. So it might take, I don't know, a minute and then some some referring back to the, the documentation for, for a reminder, you know, like a cheat sheet or something for ASCII Doc. But it is really, really simple. While its goal isn't exactly... Like Markdown seeks to look like plain text. Like, pretend like there literally is no markup here, and just make it look natural. ASCII doc, I don't think, has that level of... I don't think it has that goal. It's just to be very lightweight in its markup. And and so you do have things that aren't quite as, I don't know, I guess, I don't want to say intuitive, but maybe like just natural in in ASCII doc like my my, the the easiest example is when you're writing a link in ASCII doc you bizarrely write the link out first and then just append at the end of it with no space between the link and what your what 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 text you want to to contain that link you just put a square bracket Whatever word you want to hide, you know, as a link, uh, or you, you, the word or words that you want to to hyperlink, and then close square bracket. So you're 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 reading a paragraph, you know, to for more information about, or to to listen to my podcast, go to http: colon slash slash gnu world order dot info square bracket gnu world order dot info square bracket or or I don't know, I guess it would be like to listen to my http colon slash slash g- gnu world order dot info square bracket podcast square bracket go to my website something like that so podcast is like a hyperlink to http colon slash slash gnu world order dot info but but the way that it's actually written out you know you're 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 reading along in english and then suddenly oh my gosh there's this url here and then at the end of the URL, which feels wrong because I I would never type a square bracket into the URL bar of my web browser, so it, it's in other words, it feels a little bit unnatural. And I in in Markdown it, it hides that even better. It it sort of alerts you, hey, you're you're out of English now because we're doing a square bracket link close square bracket parentheses the word that you want to disguise as a hyperlink close parentheses. It's got s- little s- signs, little signifiers. That alert you hey stop stop you get your brain out of english mode and and talk tech for a moment and then go back into english ascii doc doesn't do that so it's a little bit less natural feeling but it's really very very simple nevertheless now ascii doc you can compile out to docbook that's the cool thing about ascii doc it'll just go straight to docbook and then from docbook you can do xslt proc Space dash dash output build slash epub for instance that would be um that would you, you would have a directory called build and in build you would have a subdirectory called epub that's how I structure my my build system so so it could be anything it could be output um my epub slash you know it doesn't matter but dash dash output build slash epub slash and then space and this is the path to the xsl. So the XSL needs to be, like, you can get that from docbook.org. Is that their address? Docbook.org? Yeah, I'm sure it is. Docbook.org. You can get the uh, the schemas, and there's an XSL file there called, or, or rather, for eBooks, or uh, ePubs. So I keep that in the same folder as the thing that I am writing. I, I don't actually. I sim link to it. But docbook slash epub slash docbook dot xsl. So that's the, the the style page. That's like the CSS file. Space, src slash temp And that is the source xml file that you've generated from your ASCII doc. Again, src source, like that's just the directory name I give it, and I'm just using tmp temp. .xml cuz I, I don't know what you call your your ascii doc uh, file but you know it could be my file.xml my, my great whatever so that processes your your doc book that you've derived from your ascii doc um, and 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 creates the infrastructure for an epub and that infrastructure includes a folder called oebps I looked up what that meant and have completely forgotten since looking it up, but it's got some files that are important to the structure of the EPUB, like content.opf, and an index file, and so on. So that directory exists, and it's within your EPUB directory, Uh, and then you do a... uh, uh, you, you need a mime type. You need to define a mime type. So you can do that. Um, let me bring up the exact mime type thing. So it's application slash EPUB plus zip. That's the mime type application slash EPUB plus zip. So if you put that literally, the, that string application slash EPUB or yeah, uh, plus zip, that string into a file called mime type. That'll be part of, that, that'll that be the thing that you need to do for the next step. You've got, so you got a mime type file containing the string application slash epil plus zip. Then you do uh, zip dash dash no dash extra. That's uh, to set the, the the no extra like file attributes or something and then dash nine that or if sorry dash zero that's the compression level and and it means basically zero compression do not compress this file but act like you are so zip dash dash no dash extra space dash zero space migratebook dot epub so here you're creating the file with an epub extension space mime type. So that's the file you just created containing this the, the, the mime type definition. So now you've got an EPUB file containing exactly one file, which is the mime type. So that basically just tells things that know to look for a mime type that there is a mime type to this zip file, and bizarrely, it's not a zip file. I mean, it is a zip file, but don't don't act like it's a zip file. Instead, act like it's an ePub file plus uh, plus zip. And and on your system, there will be something, ideally if you're trying to read an ePub, you will have loaded something that's looking for a mime type of ePub. So this th- this is like this is for app- the benefit of of your system. To see that oh this zip file is actually an EPUB, so I'll treat it differently from other zip files. This is the thing that prevents your system from opening up an EPUB just in Arc, as if though it's a zip file, and instead opening it in some appropriate EPUB reader, Ocular or uh, um, what, what's it called? Book Bookworm I think is one of them, and so on. So that that obviously, or maybe not obviously, but that doesn't contain anything but a mime-type file. That's not very useful to you. So now you're going to add that oebps file and another file that's been generated by XSLT proc, which is meta-inf. So that's just a, a zip command again, zip space dash dash no dash extra space dash nine. So this time we're doing the full compression. Migrate Book.epub or whatever file you've created for your EPUB, dash r for recursive, meta-inf space oebps. And that grabs the meta-inf file and everything in the oebps folder and zips it up at maximum compression into the file that you've created, that EPUB file. It all gets zipped up. So with zero compression applied, there's MIME type so that Anything can recognize this file as an EPUB and then compressed a lot, there's the actual contents of the EPUB book. That's it. That you've created an EPUB manually. So there's there's a lot of magic happening there because a lot of that the heavy lifting is done by XSLT proc. You just use it to apply a schema of epub to your xml data which you've generated from ascii doc couple of levels of magic but the actual like formation of the epub is just a zip file okay so now let's get on to the f as in foxtrot section and the first one is far stream i don't have a whole lot to say about this it's a set of libraries header files and libraries for streaming applications uh, a, a media streaming application, specifically video conferencing, that's the goal. So it's, it's, it's not really intended to like, it's not a streaming server for like, music, it is specifically designed for uh, video conferencing, or I guess probably telephony in general. And uh, the, the library names and header file names kind of reveal that fs dash. Well, candidate that doesn't really. Oh, there we go. Conference dot um, h, fs dash transmitter fs dash session uh, fs dash rtp participant plugin. Uh, the, the so files are things like libfsrawconference, libfsrtpconference, um, lib fs raw conference lib rtp conference lib libfsvid, uh, video any rateso so it's 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 about video conferencing, and these are going to be really useful for people who are designing a desktop application to do conferencing, video conferencing uh, through specifically GStreamer libraries, which is kind of the, well, it's one of the all-purpose multimedia libraries for Linux you've you've certainly heard of gstreamer if you've been using Linux for any amount of time it, it's one of those things that pops up usually at inconvenient times because you're usually trying to do something media related and you get an error message about you're missing a g streamer good or a gstreamer bad or gstreamer ugly and th- those are the names of the library sets so um you you've probably seen it in almost a negative context but I mean it's actually a fantastic multimedia library. It's really, really useful. You can do a lot of cool things with it, including, obviously, video conferencing. Um, I, I don't know that many desktop applications for video conferencing. I feel like that doesn't, that's not really exactly a thing. I'm not saying it shouldn't be a thing. I'm just saying it isn't really a thing. That's not to say that it's literally not a thing. I'm just saying it's not, it's it's not that popular. The online online solutions seem to have kind of taken over. But if you go to FlatHub, and, uh, no, did I mean Hub? Yeah, I did. Uh, and look up Jitsi, J-I-T-S-I. You can you you'll find a Jitsi Meet application, which I mean, honestly, it I wouldn't be surprised if it was just an Electron app at this point. Which I mean, I don't say that disparagingly. I think Electron's amazing, but um, like it's it used to be like a, a you know a GTK application that you could install, and in theory use Jitsi over. It never worked for me. Jitsi now works amazingly though if you just go to Jitsi. Well, jit. Dot, uh, meet. Dot jit dot C, so M E E T. Dot J I T. Dot S I. You can do an instant video call with whomever you want. Like, you don't have to reserve a room. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's just, it's a video call online. It's really, really cool. Jitsi is one of the good ones. It's open source as well. So that's like, that's why it's one of the good ones. There's also one called Big Blue Button, which is actually uh, really quite nice as well. I haven't used that as much, although I'll be using it on July 12th, I think or maybe my 13th um to do a training session on Kaden live uh, to 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 give a training session on Kaden live uh to a bunch of people uh for the free soft free software foundation uh so bigbluebutton.org that's a really good one uh it's sort of designed more around a classroom uh setup so there's like an instructor and that instructor has the ability to um, you know, mute the class, or to call on a class member. Uh, students have the ability to raise their hand, and and so on. So it's it's quite nice. I just haven't used it quite as much as Jitsi. Jitsi I use literally every week right now. I'm I'm doing some gaming over Jitsi, so uh, that's a a weekly thing that that I'm using Jitsi for. Uh, one I think that's kind of underrated though um, is called P2P dot chat, and P2P chat. There we go. And this is a um, what, what I think. It, what is it? R, uh, R, RPC, um, web R P C? Is it now? I have R T P in my head, so I want to make everything R T P. But anyway, it's it's a zero server interface. There's there's no there's no middle man here. It's computer to computer. Your your browser opens up a session with the other person the other person's browser it's it is it it's a direct connection it's it's really really clever p two p dot chat is very uh minimal it it's it it does not have a lot of features it is it it's kind of the it's almost proof of concept except it's really really nice i mean you can create a room again instantly you just name the room something and create the room and then you invite someone to that room and then they pop up and now you're talking over the internet directly to one another. It's pretty neat. Uh, Nextcloud has a, a similar interface to it. Um, although I will say I've, I've had some some weird problems getting people into those chats, it seems like I'll, I'll start a Nextcloud chat and invite someone to the call, but they won't, they, they won't be able to like they don't pop into my chat or they do but not their video and i can never really determine whether it's my setup or whether they're just not pressing the right buttons or or you know where the sort of the miscommunication is but uh, p2p.chat i've had a really really good experience with Um, jitsi and big blue button there are probably others that i'm not thinking of in terms of open source video conferencing but those are the three that i can think of but those are all browser based right i mean those aren't desktop applications. I mean, Jitsi, as I've said, kind of does have a, a, um, a desktop app these days. Uh, well, and, and has had for, for quite some time. Um, but I end up not ever using it. I just use it in the web browser just because I don't know, that's what I'm used to at this point, especially, you know, doing conferencing for work and stuff. It's just, you just kind of have, at least I do, I've got everything sort of set up in the browser to just, so that's that's the work dashboard or, or set of bookmarks specifically. Um yeah, so that's that's far stream. And why that ships with Slackware, I, I don't exactly know. But I mean not that everything has to have a reason to ship with Slackware. I mean, really, like why does EPUB dash tools ship with Slackware? Like there's no there's no other bigger application that that depends on ePub. Was it EPUB or ebook? Ebook dash tools, and yet it's there. Um, Farstream. I don't know that anything depends on those libraries that's installed, um, but it's there, and that's reason enough. Sometimes it's just something cool. Maybe it's something you'd like to mess around with. Well, here it is on Slackware. Next in line is FFmpeg. I could go on for forever about FFmpeg as i've said before probably in the past on the show ffmpeg was literally the application that like like that 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 really got me into open source i mean i attribute that to a lot of different applications to be honest like audacity was an early application that i used without ever understanding that it was open source i just knew that that was an audio recorder that you could get for free on the internet and and so, you know, back then I probably called it like, I don't know, shareware or freeware or something like that, not understanding the significance sort of like of it being open source. Um, but FFmpeg came around to me at a time when I was starting to understand the significance of it being open source. And I found FFmpeg as a really, really bad Mac OS 10 application called, I think, FFmpeg X or something like that and it was a it was just this horrible attempt i mean noble attempt but like looking back at it you know it's just like oh boy that was that that's painful but um it was a noble attempt by someone to to give a gui to ffmpeg and i i struggled with the gui for quite some time thinking it was probably useless and pointless and the more i researched ffmpeg the more i realized that it was actually really really powerful and that the thing that was getting in my way was the gui and i i want to say that quite possibly the first thing that i kind of learned to do in a terminal was to use ffmpeg uh, because you could go into the package that you downloaded for mac os 10 and there was just this binary of a compiled FFmpeg in the package. So I just literally just dragged that out of the package and used the binary of FFmpeg from a terminal uh to convert videos. And I because I knew how to do that, um I was able to earn um money, like rent money, uh food money for uh for myself. Uh, by converting videos for for people in the film business who couldn't edit the footage that their cameras were providing them in their video editor of choice, which at the time was Final Cut Pro. And Final Cut Pro was just very staunchly, in typical Apple fashion, staunchly under the illusion that the only thing that existed in the world was Apple-sanctioned video codecs. So, the fact that FFmpeg was able to take some weird, I think it was actually t- X264, to be perfectly honest. I think there was a time, and I could be misremembering, but I think there was a time when Final Cut Pro couldn't parse X264 or H264 video. Uh, so, I would take that and then tra- translate it into a QuickTime movie for people, uh, and they would then be able to edit it in their Apple on their Apple computer in their Apple software and that was a service that I provided like I say for money earned earned actual rent money with 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 that knowledge and and this was around the same time that I had discovered like Tetris and Emacs and the GPL and so it it all started to kind of coalesce around that time so ffmpeg is a big deal for me for that reason, like, sentimental reasons, bizarrely. But it's also a big deal because it's just such a, a, a useful application, and I could do a whole episode on, on FFmpeg really, really easily. Like, I mean, there's just, there's no way to um, to overstate its flexibility. Like, it's just such a, a powerhouse. If you do a, a man page, or if you do a man FFmpeg uh, pipe, T, pipe, P, R, uh, then it 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 formats the man page into sort of a you know in theory printable, paginated output, and uh, I I've got thirty three pages by by its count is it's thirty three pages. It's I mean it could be more I don't know but that's that's what it's telling me is thirty three pages. So there's a lot here. Um, at at its most basic, ffmpeg can you know it 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 converts right that's what it does. And the, I think the, in theory, the, the syntax is pretty darn easy. It's ffmpeg dash i for input, and then some input. Let me find some, uh, some test footage here. Here's some clouds, cloud flyover dot mov. Uh, so that's input is that. And then, and then the rest of your command is specifying various aspects of the output that you want so a lot of times that might be something like um maybe there's no audio or or maybe there is audio but you want to drop it so that might be for instance dash a in for audio no um, if you wanted to, I don't know, get just the audio from this stream, then it could be dash "-vn", as in video no. So I'm going to do "-an", for audio no. Then maybe there's something like, I don't know, the codec that you want to use. Although, honestly, you don't even have to do that lately. You can pretty much just provide the output. So uh, I'll put that in my temporary directory, and I'll call it test um, webm just for kicks. Oh, and I'm gonna actually, before that, I'm gonna do dash "-threads6", so that I'm I'm threading this ideally quite a bit. Now you can also do other things like uh, specify the size, a new size of video. Uh, Before you do that, you might need to investigate what size this video is in the first place, really. So maybe there would have been a step before that. And there's a tool for that, called FF probe FF probe tells you just analyzes a media file and dumps all of the information that it can extract or, or, or divine about that media file to your terminal it's a very very useful tool so I'll just do FF probe videos stock footage here's a different cloud movie I just just grabbing random things here bill, bill, billowing clouds uh, so that's a major brand is cute, so or, oh no, it's not cute q t quick quick time uh the minor version uh, compatible brands the um here's the duration twelve seconds that's correct. it's just a little stock stock footage um, here is the encoder photo jpeg, so not great bitrate. Uh, stream is zero zero is English, video mjpeg jpeg yuvj four two two p so that's the um that's the the format uh nineteen twenty by ten eighty is the size so there's the nineteen twenty by ten eighty so that's good um, let's see if my my webm is done it is okay so I'm gonna do an ll of my temporary directory and look at how big this file is the file size of test.webm is 4.0 um, four, four, 4 megabytes and the size of the quicktime movie source is 202 megabytes and that's why you really ought to consider using WebM. WebM is an amazing format, um, for megabytes versus two hundred and two megabytes. Uh, and yes, you know, one's a lot. I, I've shaved off a lot of, I'm sure, quality or something from WebM. But I mean, honestly, to look at it, it's just amazing. It looks great. So, um, so that's that's the the syntax: ffmpeg -i your input, and then all the options that you want for your output. Now, again, before you decide upon your output, you probably really do want to know about your input. So don't, don't forget to to actually investigate what your input, what you're getting from your input file. Um, FFprobe will give you the information. It's, I, I will say it's not the most beautiful output format. There's something called media info that can do this a lot sort of prettier for you, um, and it just flat out labels things better. I mean, it's it's not a matter of being pretty; it's, it's just a matter of being explicit, really. So, um, it, media info is not in Slackware, but it is on slackbuilds.org, so you can compile it. I think there's a GUI for it as well, but I never use that. I just do media info and then the path to the video. And it gives you all the same information it just tells you what it is so for instance uh general is complete name okay that's the path format mpeg4 format profile quick time codec id qt 2005.03 uh, file size it just gives it to you right there 201 megabytes what's a megabyte among friends uh duration 12 seconds 30 346 milliseconds Overall bitrate is variable, but the overall bitrate itself is 137 megabits per second. Encoded date is 2009. Uh, tagged date, uh, writing library, Apple QuickTime. Video ID, one. Format, JPEG. Duration, uh, blah, blah. Um, here's the, the width, one space, 920 pixels. Uh, height, one space, 080 pixels. I'm assuming the space is just a missing comma or something. Fra- uh the display aspect ratio 16:9 frame rate fr- frame rate mode is constant the frame rate is 29.97 so it I mean it, and it goes on and on. So it, it gives you a lot of information. That's super useful information. That's the kind of stuff that you want to look at before you convert something. Just to make sure that you're doing something that that's actually going to save you space or that's going to preserve quality or whatever your goal is, media info or FF probe. If, if, if you're, if you don't, if you can't be bothered, do you have uh, media info that that's an important step? That's an important first step. So FF impeg, then you can make choices about what, what you want to do with that input file. So again, if, if the goal is to just save some space then maybe you want to just re-encode you know a, a particularly large file that was recorded on your phone down to something a lot smaller like a webm file in which case you can do that um just by specifying an output file ending in webm now that's a vp9 codec So if you needed for some reason to specify that specifically, you can. You can do a dash v colon c or c colon v. I'm going to find out, I guess. Uh, And that's going to be libvp9. It looks like it's codec dash c colon v. Oh, libvp9 is not a valid library. Okay, there we go. Okay, so the final command, uh, in, in case you ever need to explicitly define what library you you want to use for for encoding, uh, you can specify that with a dash C for codec, colon, either A for audio or V for video, and then tell it the the library that you want to use. That's a little bit awkward. I've always found that specifying, like finding the right name for the library seems to be a little bit difficult I I think FFmpeg could probably do a better job of making that easier now you can get the configuration of I mean, like you FFmpeg tells you its configuration pretty easily it's not hard to get that you can just do FFmpeg just type FFmpeg it gives you the version and then it tells you everything that you you compiled this with. So it 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 it, li- it just literally shows you the options like dash dash mander equals user man, dash dash um enable shared, dash dash disable static, dash dash enable GPL, dash dash uh enable A V resample, dash dash enable free or dash dash enable dash open al dash, dash, enable, dash, lib, opus, and so on. It goes on and on and on. And this is my own build. I us- Is it actually? This might be the official Slackware build because I used to go to great lengths to compile FFmpeg myself, but now I, I think as of this time, I might have just gotten away with using Pat's version, and it looks like I did. So that's kind of interesting. For a while, I was compiling it myself because I just wanted literally everything in FFmpeg. Um, but lately I, it, my, my workflows have become a lot more predictable and it just doesn't pay for me to make sure that I have literally every codec that I can find in, in FFmpeg. Uh, and if ever I get video footage that just for some reason needs to be converted and I can't figure out how to convert it, um, then I'll, 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 I'll recompile FFmpeg. It's not that big of a deal. So, uh, it does list all the, the the things that are enabled. But for instance, for for VP9 is the option was dash dash enable dash lib vpx. But the the library that you want to reference when when converting using vp9 is not vpx, it's vp9. Or if you want to, um, to, to convert using vp8, then it's uh, dash c colon v uh, vp8 instead of vp9 so that that feels a little bit that's always been a little bit un, un unsteady and and i always for you know i i'm always getting it wrong I, it'll be like dash v uh, or dash c colon a vorbis oh no not vorbis lib vorbis so it's 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 one of those things where it's always it's always what you don't think it is it's, but you know it's always the second thing you, that you try uh, and, and I, I'm making that up. It could be, maybe it is Vorbis and not libVorbis. I don't know. But, but the point is that I always think it's the other one. AAC often, I think, gives me tr- tr- problems as well. I think because it's, I think I have FDK underscore AAC installed. And so I have to use that. But if you don't use that, then you might be using FAAC or FAAD. Uh, well, it would be FAAC for this, um, so yeah, it, it, it's very difficult to know, really, what you're supposed to feed feed um, FFmpeg. Now, there's another way to find out what's available, in theory, on your system, and that's FFmpeg-format. Or is it formats? Plural. Formats. Yeah, dash formats. Not dash dash, just dash. Dash formats. And then that gives you a big long list, like screenfuls and screenfuls of all the different, um, uh, you know, uh, th- formats that are available on your system. Um, but again, it doesn't tell you what magical incantation to use to get there. So you you can f- you you can see that you ha- you have access to WebM. If you if you look around enough U V W there we go w, WebM 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 underscore chunk I've got E E and E and D E and E by all of or yeah uh, E E D E by those so that's uh, encoder encoder and then one of them the uh, WebM dash manifest has a decoder and encoder so I've got all that stuff it's just I don't know how or you might not know how to to get there now luckily I think FFmpeg has gotten a lot better at just detecting the ending, the file ending. So certainly WebM, WebP, um, uh, AUG, those things, like it just kind of knows what what, what encoder to use. But if you're doing something a little bit more fiddly, like an M4V or M4A or MP4, you want to use something specific, maybe you want to use, uh, vid instead of two, six, four or something like that, then, then it can get kind of tricky, but, um, that's the, that's the basics of FFMPEG. And I think that's probably sufficient FFMPEG dash I for input, the thing that you want to convert and then all of the output options. And, and that's, I guess where it gets tricky because there's a lot of output options. There are filters you can send it through, you, you, the media through and to, to for processing before it gets written to file. There, there's, there's just a whole bunch of things that you can do with FFmpeg. I'm going to assume that a lot of people mostly care about file size, because that's, in my experience, that's usually what people are trying to do. So the the main things there are the the image size like the 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 quote-unquote physical size the pixel count it's it's probably not all that surprising to you to to hear that 1920 by 1080 is on average going to be almost as you know twice as much file size as like a 720 by 960 image it's just, it's because one is double the other. And so, so ultimately one is going to, you know, the other one's going to be bigger. The other one's going to be smaller. So that's a thing that happens. Um, the, uh, the other thing is the audio. You'd be surprised at how much of your sort of budget, as it were, that the audio takes up. Uh, you have uncompressed audio in a video or several audio streams in a video, then, then your video is going to be bigger. And and technically the video isn't, but that file containing your video and audio certainly is. And that's because you you might have like Dolby AC3, as well as a uh, M4A, and maybe some other language streams in there as well. So you've got like possibly, you know, two, three, four audio streams streams all embedded within the same container file as your single video. And if you were to extract just the video and maybe just one of those streams, or maybe you extract one of those streams and, and then you compress that stream and then you put the video and the audio back into a container together, then then you've got a smaller file. So those are the two major things. It's it's your audio and the just the the, the pixel count of your video. Also the length, um, usually, usually a two hour, 90 uh, minute movie file is going to be larger than a 30 second clip. You can control the endpoints and the outpoints in FFmpeg with the dash SS for start and dash two like to, um, options and those both take timestamps so you might do dash s s zero zero colon zero one colon zero zero to start about a minute in and then maybe you want to go until i don't know the five minute mark so you do dash to zero zero colon zero six colon zero zero because you've started at one you want to go to the five minute mark so you have to go five minutes forward for a total of you know to the six minutes point actually Um, that was confusingly said. I said five minute mark so I guess okay so five minute mark would be zero zero colon zero four colon zero zero because now you because you're already one in so you go four more and now you're at the five minute mark there if you wanted five minutes of video then you would have done from one to to six Uh, so and, and you can you can whittle that down to the the millisecond which gets a little bit confusing because video usually talks in frames but frames aren't really a thing, so FFmpeg usually talks in milliseconds. That's a little bit clunky. That's tough. But, you know, you can do math and figure things out if you really need to, but frames are kind of an illusion anyway. It's really a film convention. Video streams don't really understand what that is. I mean, we, we, we put it there. We forced it upon it, but but it's not really a thing. So... um. So there, there's all of that. And then there's a bunch of, like I say, a bunch of other things that you can control, like the, the quality of, 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 um, of the audio, the bit rate, the, whether something is a constant bit rate or a variable bit rate, and that's a really, really nice feature because in a, in a video stream, you can tell FFmpeg to keep the entire video at a constant rate of, of bit data. Or you can allow it to use its own judgment and be a little bit sparser on video frames that don't move a lot. Like if it's just a talking head and mostly, you know, their head is bobbing back and forth a little bit, but mostly it's just their mouth moving. You don't really need a lot of bit rate for that. Like the background isn't changing. Maybe it is just around their head as they, as they move, but most of the image... You can just recycle pixels from the previous frame. So if you if you know if you say it if you if you set your movie to be a constant bit rate though, then it's going to be constant quality no matter what. It's going to be refreshing those pixels every frame no matter what, or every other frame or you know whatever bit rate you're you, you've set. Whereas if it's a variable bit rate, then it then it can find those areas that don't require a lot of refreshed pixels and cheat those places so that it can then refresh all the more during the big action scene with the explosions and the lasers and the laser swords and the spaceships and things that are moving around. So there are lots of little tricks, and and the best way to learn them... And, and every movie is different. You know, every, every file is different. So when you're encoding, the thing that you learned yesterday on 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 the on the documentary uh with people just talking about i don't know Fermat's last theorem the, the everything you learned on that you you're going to throw out the window tomorrow when you're encoding the big action sci-fi movie because it, they'll be completely they'll, they'll want completely different things you'll be able to cheat in different ways on both of those two things and and so the best way to to explore all of the different options available in FFmpeg is to encode video. Just encode video. If you want to learn FFmpeg and get a feel for what all these different options do, every night, just encode a video. First, encode the same video lots of different ways. Do it at different resolutions. Do it at different bit rates. Do it with different filters applied you just do do lots of different things and d- different filters of course apply differently to different codecs as well so there's 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 that um a lot of the the fancy FFmpeg commands you see in a lot of places like in handbrake and even katian live a lot of those are are they're there because they have to be there for the for the codec that's being used like x264 you've got a lot of control, for better or for worse, over your I-frames and your B-frames and your P-frames and things like that. Maybe you don't even want that. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe the codec that you want to go out to doesn't bother with that. And so maybe your command for WebM is going to be a lot simpler than your X264 command. That's okay, because, I mean, frankly, WebM is the superior codec between those two, so you might as well just go with WebM. But, I mean, if if for whatever reason you need to go to X264, then obviously you, you might want to learn the... different little filters available for that but the point is encode lots of video encode the same video over and over and over and over with different settings see what that does sometimes it won't do anything you'll you'll you won't notice a difference and that's good like that's important to notice and then start doing different video files at those different settings and, and see and see how you know the rolling cloud stock footage differs from the gently swaying dandelions in the breeze footage like those, those will be two different those will react differently um, daylight shots versus dark night shots those, those are going to be different uh, for a very long time on like netflix and streaming services that people pay for uh, if you looked in the dark regions like the shadowy regions on on a lot of shots you'd see all this digital noise and every time i would see it i would just cringe and i know exactly what they did uh to 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 accidentally end up with that kind of those artifacts in their encoding, you know, but it's it's painful to see, and you think, yep, that's that's exclusively because they didn't they, they 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 did a batch job of a bunch of different movies for probably maybe a different uh, for a specific quality or a specific size file size, and and they didn't take into the into account that this needs more latitude uh, in its, in its colors than, you know, the other movie that, that takes place all during the day, really, really brightly lit, you know, not, not a big deal. So FFmpeg, very, very powerful, very, very complex, but to start with it, it's very, very simple FFmpeg dash I for input, the input file, and then really, honestly, the output file that'll do it like a different codec or a different format for your output file just see what happens see what ffmpeg does for you and and then start adding different di- you know try different codecs try different options look at the man page just try different settings it'll it'll get frustrating because a lot of the settings like i say don't work universally so you'll think well why did i try that it's not it's not even going well try try something different uh yeah that's it that's ffmpeg i talked about that really a lot longer than i i think i meant to but as as i've said i'm a big fan of ffmpeg that's that is one of the deciding factors for for what distribution i use like i i one of the reasons i love slackware is because i can control what version of ffmpeg i use very very easily i can control how it gets compiled and on a lot of other distributions Trying to compile FFmpeg yourself is just an exercise in frustration because you have to build the, the package for FFmpeg and then that's going to depend on a lot of other packages even though it might not actually depend on other packages. So then you have to adjust that and, and it just it goes on and on and on and it's horrible. Slackware, it's easy. You download the source code, you figure out your configuration uh, options, you make sure that you've got all the libraries that you want to compile, you know, compile against installed, uh, and then you go and it, it compiles it and you install it and you, you're, you're on your way. And that's what I would do, f- you know, every, every new Slackware release for a very long time. And like I said, Slackware 15, I think is the first time I've, I've bothered not doing that, uh, which feels a little bit, a little bit crazy because it is such an important application. But sometimes I think, um, the, the way that, that it gets compiled in Slackware is just happens to coincide with the way that I like it to be compiled. And, and lately it's been working for me, so I have not bothered. Uh, and that's great. I, that's, that's fantastic. I, I want that. That is really good. Um, that's FFmpeg. We did not get through the whole F section, unfortunately. Um, but that's okay because there's not a whole lot left. There's, um, there's about a screen full of of F as in Foxtrot applications, FFTW, Fluid Synth, Free Cell, FreeType, FreeOr. So lots of cool multimedia related things that I'm very excited to talk about. But um, I'm not gonna do it right now. I'll do it next episode instead. And then we'll get on to whatever comes after F in the alphabet. Who knows? It could be D, it could be G. We'll find out. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. contact with Central Earth Control at 0200.